Encounter Church, how are you today? Yeah, you doing okay? You guys surviving rain? It's been raining. It's soggy outside. Everybody making it? Anyone else trying to grow grass seed in their yard? Yeah, okay. Good talk. Good talk. Hey, we're uh, continuing and completing our series on hope and the book of Jeremiah. Thank you for being here the last couple weeks. Last week, Nick crushed it. Let's hear it for Nick. You guys were here for Nick? Yeah. Just so good. Caleb was the week before. It's been great to talk about hope. If you have a phone, if you have a Bible, you can open it. And we're going to be in Jeremiah 32. Lots of Bible today, guys. I'm so sorry. Uh, lots of Bible. Are you ready? I love it. Okay, as we're talking about hope, let's start by talking about real estate. <laughs> uh, the real estate market is crazy. You know this. You have the news right on your phone, and all throughout the United States, real estate is blowing up, even in historically like affordable cities like Phoenix and Chicago and Austin. Things are crazy. Prices are at an all-time high. Some markets are 20% up on the year. My goodness, let's not even talk about expensive cities like Orange County, California that I just moved from a year ago. It's go Even cities like Boise, Idaho and Bozeman, Montana, you guys, there are like 14 people in Montana, and the housing market is crazy. People are having trouble because of low inventory. It's hard for middle-class folks like ourselves to purchase homes, and it's true in Grand Rapids as well. If you've bought a house or you have friends that bought a house, if you've driven by a house, uh, people are purchasing homes like for crazy over-asking. They're waiving inspections and contingencies. People are even putting in offers without even seeing the house. Real estate, up and down, up and down. And in France, check this out, because homes have been owned for generations and often the costs of purchasing a new home are prohibitive, they have built a little tradition where they're purchasing real estate on futures. And similar to like a reverse mortgage, uh, people will offer a contract which in French is called en varge. How's that for my French? I don't know. It, which basically means a for-life contract. Here's what it is. A prospective buyer offers a legally binding monthly rate for a property until the death of the seller. So similar to a reverse mortgage, the owner of the property gets to enjoy a monthly income, and the buyer gambles on getting a real estate bargain depending on how long the owner of the property lives. So in 1965, Jean Calment was 90 years old, and a family friend named Andre Raffray offered her 2,500 francs a month, which was about 500 bucks at the time, offered her 2,500 francs a month until she died, when he would then take legal possession of her super nice apartment in France. And he thought he had made a real good deal at the time. But 30 years later, Jean Calment had survived to become the world's oldest living human being. And that year, Mr. Raffray died at the age of 77, with his widow still legally obligated to send Jean Calment payments. And Mr. Raffray ended up paying out the equivalent of more than two times what the property would have been worth for an apartment that he never even got to live in. Mm -mm. Real estate speculation has caused some people to do some crazy 
and foolish things. And while this is an example of an investment gone wrong, the book of Jeremiah in chapter 32 records a purchase of an empty lot outside of Jerusalem as one of the strangest examples of real estate investment that I've ever seen. Uh, but as usual, there's a backstory here, and it's a story that points to an incredibly beautiful picture of who God is and how he loves us. So let's turn to Jeremiah 32, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. That's important. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah there, saying, basically he's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah said this enough that Zedekiah knows it by heart. He says, why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Couple things. Jeremiah is under house arrest for speaking out against the unjust practices of the nation, and he has spoken God's truth to kings and to leaders, warning of the destructive path of their arrogance. Second, the city of Jerusalem is uh, now under siege by the Babylonian army for 18 months at this time. Babylon was the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And the city was just two years away from complete collapse at the hands of the Babylonians. Eventually, we now know that they would, the city was two years away from Jerusalem being totally devastated. And all of the people of Jerusalem were eventually going to be sent to Babylon to live and to work there with just a few remaining in Jerusalem to farm and provide income for Babylon. In the siege, the siege was devastating. The entire army of Babylon camped out around the walls of Jerusalem. They had tried to make their way in, but the walls were fortified well, and they couldn't get into the city, so they just decided to wait it out. They camped around the city and did not allow access in or out, so what did they not have? The people in Jerusalem did not have enough food. They struggled to find water sources. In some cases in sieges, the sewage was also cut off so that all of the waste of a city would stay in the city and it would create incredible and devastating disease. And that is what the people of Jerusalem are going through. Uh, the next book after uh, Jeremiah is called Lamentations and it's songs about the pain of that season. And this is a, a verse from there in chapter 4. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth, the children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple, like the royalty, now live on the ash heap. The siege was devastating. And I think as a father of three boys, how much pain it would have been to look out over the city and see those armies camping on what was farmlands and to struggle to provide and the decisions that were forced upon families in that time. 
And this is what happens in the middle of that pain. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth. That's actually Jeremiah's hometown. Because as the nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Jeremiah says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field. I bought the field. Let's recap. Jeremiah's in prison for saying things that the king didn't like. The city is under siege, going through an incredibly painful season. And Jeremiah feels led to buy a piece of worthless field as a sign that God is going to do good things again. This is this field that he most likely would never plant crops on, never build a house on. He perhaps might not even see it, just like Mr. Raffray. He would never get to enjoy the work of the investment of this field. But he feels that God is saying, buy that field. So this is what Jeremiah does. Verse 8, I weighed out for him, this is a lot of detail, follow me, I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies and the deeds of the purchase, and put them away in a clay jar so they last for a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel said, and listen to this. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. There are a lot of ways that prophets found to get people's attention. You know, but buying a field is such a strange thing. Like, I feel like he could have taken out an article in the paper. Uh, he could have rented a billboard or a skywriter. Like, I feel like a prophet would get David Blaine to, like, hang upside down in a dunk tank with ginger ale and jellyfish. Like, that's a way to get people's attention. But he buys a field that is worth so little value to point the people to hope. And this is what Eugene Peter says about why. Listen to this. He did it because he was convinced that the troubles everyone was experiencing were at the very moment, moment being used by God in what would eventually turn out to be the salvation of the land. The essential reality for Jeremiah was not that the Babylonians were camped on the field at Anathoth, but that God was using that ground to fulfill his purposes. He brought the field as an investment in God's next project for Israel. This is a deliberate act of hope. It is action. It's easy to confuse for us often the difference like hope and wishing. Those are different things. This is not Jeremiah throwing a nickel into a fountain. It's an action, an act of hope. Hope. It's the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun even when the appearance opposes it. It's not blind gambling. It's not a coin flip on your future. What's interesting here is that throughout the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's words were constantly at odds with the other religious leaders. The priests and the other prophets the whole time are saying this. Hey, we are God's people. 
We're blessed. God is on our side. Everything, everything is going to be okay. You just keep doing what you're doing. And what's Jeremiah saying the whole time? No. No, things are, things aren't, things are not good. We're living selfishly. We're pursuing unjust practices. We're living arrogantly and expecting that God will continue to bless us even though we are not living up to our end of the commitment to follow God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to turn from our ways or else we will experience judgment. And now the Babylonian army is camped out along the city. And what are the prophets and priests saying? Oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. We're lost. All hope is lost. God has forsaken us. God has abandoned us. God has forgotten us. And ever the contrarian, now what is Jeremiah saying? I'm going to spend 17 bucks and buy a a piece of land that you think has no value as a symbol, as a sign that God is in the business and in the work of restoring and keeping his promises, that there is a way to find hope in difficult circumstances. Sometimes what we think is hope is really just daydreaming. It's fantasy. We daydream about success or fame or love, whatever it might be, but true hope is activity. It's what Jeremiah does. It's doing things that appear to be crazy or misunderstood. Eugene Peterson goes on to say this. Look at this. Hope commits us to actions that connect with God's promises. I'm just going to leave that up there for a second. Hope commits us to actions that connect with God's promises. For Jeremiah, hope is investing in the work of God. It's actionable trust that God will be faithful, that he will keep his promises even in dark moments like Jeremiah references in chapter 30. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. My goodness, this language. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. That's an incredible foreshadow. It's an incredible pointing to what God will use to bring the people back to himself. See, God sees the destruction of their present moment. He sees his plan coming together. God sees this moment as judgment, as an act of saving grace. Have you ever experienced a moment like that? Have you ever thought of consequences or, or even God's judgment as an act of his love? An act of his grace? Uh, I'm, a few months back, I was meeting with a mentor of mine that's walked with me for about 10 years. And uh, he's been so encouraging and at times, like, calling me out on stuff. And this is a great side, like, and I hope you have someone in your life that you can invite into calling you out and encouraging you and speaking truth. And he's been there for me in the highs and the lows of uh, life as a husband and life as a father and a pastor. 
and a leader and a recovering narcissist, like someone who's just committed to his own selfishness sometimes. Uh, and we were talking about how difficult the last two years have been for me and struggling through pressure and my own insecurities and mental health struggles and parenting challenges and job changes and cross-country moves, like circumstances that I would have rather avoided and many things that in my foolishness I would have otherwise tried to push through on my own, like that I would have tried to control or to fix or to rescue just on my own, like resilience. And my friend smiled and he said, like, Joe, can you see now that the difficulty of the last few years was God's daring rescue for you? Like, can you see that? Like, can you look back and see that the struggle of the last few years was actually God's faithful love for you? Like he was present with you, and it was his daring rescue. God was bringing in circumstances that you never would have chosen to save you from greater pain that you could have never escaped on your own. And he affirmed that God often works this way, and I would have never seen it or probably not accepted that to be true in the moment. Like I thought... It was a moment of failure. I thought that I was living under siege, that the city walls were being torn down, that I was going to be sent into exile. I was going to have to move to Michigan. Oh, my goodness. But God has a better view of our future. Like sailing in the Caribbean or often on a, on a boat in uncharted and potentially dangerous waters, the captain relies on a lookout. You know, the captain stays behind in the wheel and sends someone up to the bow or perhaps up the mast, and their job is to shout out dangerous things on the horizon. Reef over here, sandbar over here, move 10 degrees this way. Hey, iceberg, straight ahead. Like, we should listen to those folks. We've seen movies about it. It happens. And because those folks have a better view of what's coming, and sometimes God <laughs> sends us a lookout. Sometimes God sends us a lookout for someone who has a better view of the future than we do. And that was Jeremiah for the people. Like, after years of forecasting, coming judgment of God, you know, the, turn from your sin, turn from your injustice. This is happening. You need to look out for that. Turn around. Go the other way. Iceberg, straight ahead. That was Jeremiah's job, basically. Iceberg, straight ahead. And just when all of these things were happening and the armies camped out, just when Jeremiah has the chance to finally be like, you guys, I, saw, I told you this was happening. You guys didn't listen to me. Like, come on, now it's time to give me credit. He doesn't do that. He spends his effort and his energy sharing with the people why. Why are the armies camped out? Why are we facing these devastating circumstances? When judgment is imminent, there is more than Babylon at the gate. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Man, he's saying that God is in your midst with his plan of rescue, with his idea of what it looks like to rebuild the people's heart. The army of Babylon wasn't the sign that God had given up on the people. 
It wasn't the sign that God had given up on the people. It was the sign that God's grace was launching their future. If they repent, this is your opportunity. This isn't a sign that God's given up on you. The trouble and the struggle that you're going through isn't a sign that he's distant or disconnected or he's abandoned you. This is, a sign, this is an opportunity for, for you to turn around. This is his daring rescue for you. Jeremiah 30, verse 17, but I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. And there are many times throughout Scripture that God, in his judgment, was true mercy. There's no greater picture of God's judgment as an act of love than when we see Jesus. Romans 5, 9, since we have now been justified or made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The translation of the message says it this way, for now that we are set right with God by means of his sacrificial death, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. No longer a question of being at odds with God in any way because of what Jesus has done. We don't have to experience that judgment. Jesus has absorbed, he's taken that judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus gave his life, he accepted the judgment of God so that you and I wouldn't have to. Because Jesus suffered, you won't experience the suffering of separation from God unless that is your choice. God is holy and perfect. His character is inconsistent with our selfishness and pride, but because Jesus has become our sacrifice, we have been justified to God. We have been made right that our sins are no longer making us an enemy to God. His wrath has been absorbed, and after judgment comes hope. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought and sold in this land. A couple of thoughts. You may be terrified of God's judgment. The thought of like the army outside the camp. For those in Christ Jesus, Scripture tells us that there is no condemnation. That Jesus has taken that penalty, taken that judgment it really, what most of us experience and point to as God's judgment is really often just the consequences of our own actions. And, and often we are terrified to face those consequences. The, the terrified of confessing or coming clean on addiction, repenting of our, of our brokenness, knowing that we're, we might face ridicule or embarrassment or shame. And the work to confess sin, I mean, how fun is that? We all try to avoid that. None of us want to admit that we've made a mess of our lives. But even the Babylonian army at the walls of the city was God's goodness for the people. His judgment is and was his love. Don't fear God's work to grow you it is so much better than the alternative. And some of you might feel like a field in a forgotten city at Anathoth. Like you have lost your value and your worth. 
maybe after the divorce, maybe after the relationship ended, when you look in the mirror, it's hard to imagine that someone might love you again. Because you can barely love yourself. You can barely see the value and worth in your own eyes when you look into the mirror. What does it look like to hold on to the hope that God still sees you as valuable? That God still sees you? That God knows you? That you are not a forgotten field in a forgotten city? That God wants to rebuild. That he can make it possible that land will be bought and sold again. My goodness, maybe for you, the job just ended and it did not end the way you thought it was going to. And your confidence has tanked. Even in a market where it feels like everybody can get a job, you're still looking. You're still looking for the right thing and keep getting passed over and passed over and it's been a lot longer than you expected and that confidence, that lack of confidence has now turned into just despair. And you wonder like, what's, what's next? Does God still have a plan for me? What is this season? Has God forgotten me? Is he distant? God says, land can be purchased again. Land can be bought. You are not a forgotten field in a forgotten city. There is hope. What you hear as armies, you see the walls collapsing. You know the hunger of your neighbors, and you think there is no reason for joy, no logical reason for hope, but God has a better view. He is kind. He is gracious. Even as enemies are at the door, God is at work for your future. What you think is your destruction might be God's mercy. What you think is the end is perhaps your next chapter. What you fear most could be God's grace to save you from yourself. What you see as this huge detour was really a rerouting to protect you from a head-on collision that you would not have been able to avoid on your own. Because God says, land will be bought and sold again. Crops will be planted. Houses will be built. And today we celebrate communion. Or what traditionally has been called the Lord's Supper. Communion is an invitation to remember God's power and love to save us from our own selves. In the sacrifice of Jesus. The first communion was a meal on the night before Jesus was betrayed and before he was crucified. And today we remember with these sterile little cups. If you have one, great. Tim's also passing them around. We remember with these cups of this juice and whatever that little wafer is on top. And like everything on this side of heaven, this is an incomplete and important picture of acknowledging God as Savior, confessing that we don't understand often or even like the circumstances around us, that God's view is better than our view and that we can cling to hope. If you're unfamiliar with this tradition, it's important to share that taking communion does not make you a Christian. It's an act of remembrance and an act of worship. 
And if you are not a follower of Christ, first, I'm so glad that you're here. I'd love to talk with you and say hi after the experience. And if you're not a follower of Christ, it's totally okay to, to pass on this and, and to allow this moment to be a, a moment of reflection. For Christians, we're instructed to not take communion mindlessly or as scripture says, in an unworthy manner, which means we're not living in a pattern of willful disobedience or like we have unconfessed sin in our life. And as you take the cups that was passed out, first you can take the first tab and you can peel that back. It's the clear one. And you can take the wafer in your hand. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after he washed the feet of his disciples as a symbol of his divine servanthood, he served the group bread. And the bread and this wafer is a picture of Jesus' body, that the God of the universe took the humble form of a human to save us and to serve us, to know our struggles and our pains to be God with us. Jesus was a real man, and there is nothing that you have experienced that he can't understand. There is no pain that you are walking through or have walked through that he hasn't felt. God knows your struggles because he walked on this earth as a human. Reflect on this for like 10 seconds and then we'll take the bread together. He took the bread, gave thanks to the Father and said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup of wine, a picture of the blood that he would spill in the coming hours. His life was given for us. He was wounded, he was tortured to absorb the penalty of the world's sin. And as he bled, he sacrificed himself for you. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Reflect on that for a moment. Jesus took the cup and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Let's pray together. Jesus, Thank you.
after they had taken the supper and the meal together, they prayed and they sang together. And that's what we're going to do after we reflect, we are able to worship, we're able to thank God for Jesus' sacrifice. So would you stand and would you be prepared to sing as an act of worship in response to the God of hope? <laughs> 